When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Joe, we haven't even talked about this beforehand. Um, Andrew, I'm, 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 I'm. I'm just going to be just ridiculously unprofessional in this one. Uh, first of all, he's going to geek out. I'm going to geek out. I'm also going to just say like, normally we'll spend about a minute and a half talking about your actual film. Cause you know, there's 50 interviews. We talk about that. We'll get into your movies and we will, but I, I it, 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 easily my favorite movie of the year. Oh, um, my, my, uh, my wife and I watched all of us strangers. I, Joe, you liked it, right? Hello. We it's, haven't even, it's, it's a, it's a lovely movie. And, and it, it reminded me of my favorite Twilight Zone episode, uh, Walking Distance, which I always, which always chokes me up. And then I, and, and this is, this is a choker. I mean, this is like anybody who's ever had parents is, uh, and, and the way that you managed to do this was, it is so clever. And, uh, I, I was just very impressed. I'm sorry. I don't even know how to like assemble all my thoughts. Cause I also just found something out about 15 minutes ago. Uh, by, by the way, we're with Andrew Haig. He's the, the writer director of uh, uh, all of us strangers. Um, he's previously, uh, uh, I mean, movies I, I have seen and loved. I mean, 45 years is wonderful. I didn't realize you had done lean on Pete, which I saw it. I was like, what a great, that just seemed very, and even before anything else, I just found out actually two things. One, uh, what do I have to do to to get to see the Northwater in America? Do you know about this? Joey's got a British mini series. It's uh, who's uh, Jack O'Connell and Colin Farrell um, on a 19th century whaling vessel. Yeah, you have to be in Britain to watch it, <laughs> right? Well, no, we've got him here. Surely, surely he could like send us links or something. I think it's on. I think it's on AMC Plus, which I'm not it's sure not. I get to meet someone that's actually got AMC Plus. Or maybe it's I, I do. It. It's not available. We'll find it. I mean, it, it, you can track down almost anything. Making me insane. I'm dying to see this thing. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm pretty. I just, you know, I like to do it legitimately. Um, but uh, there, there's that. Um, there's, there's, where do we begin? I just also found out, Joe, that this movie, forgive me, we'll get much more efficient in a little bit. I'm just so excited. We, we stalked you. We got you on the show. Um, uh, my wife and I watched it and we're just absolutely devastated in the best way possible. And, and to everything Joe said about sort of thinking about your parents and, and it made us think of and talk for days about our parents and about our relationship, but also we're parents of I mean, a new 19 month old baby. And it made us think in sort of new and important ways about that relationship as well. And, um, just, just blown away by it. And then to find out, uh, cause I don't know if you guys have even heard this a couple of days ago, Judd Apatow made some news by saying how outraged and insulting it was that, uh, Barbie, 
um, is going to be uh, eligible to be an adapted screenplay and not an original one. And as somebody who has been nominated for an adapted screenplay in which I changed the source material a whole hell of a lot, I was kind of personally offended. And now to find out, Joe, are you sitting down? This this book is basically a what like a science fiction horror novel. The um uh, uh oh my god, what's his name? Uh, Paul. Uh, oh Jesus, here I'm doing it. Paul Mescal character is not just a woman; she's some kind of space vampire. Am I correct? And she tries to kill him in the last act. And <laughs> he made he a lot of changes in the adaptation. And, 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 and apparently, apparently, there's a Japanese version, a movie version of that. And there's a movie version, yeah, yeah which I'm certainly interested in seeing. Just the, but the degree to which the amazing, I mean, I've had this experience, not to this degree, and gone so far where you read a book and you go, my, my story is buried in here somewhere. But the fact that you took that story and saw your story so clearly is amazing. And the, fa- I'm, and the, I'm fact, I'm that, and the more, fact that the house in the movie is actually the house that you grew up in. It's so emotional when you, when you look at it that way. You know, and also, yeah. in addition, on a, on, a, on a cinematic level, you have re- resuscitated the art of the dissolve, which has almost oh, yeah. been completely missing <laughs> in movies. I mean, there are hardly any movies with dissolves anymore. And this one's got like the first half hour has got like 20 dissolves. It's great. I love, I'm obsessed by dissolves. I can't get enough of them. But sometimes the editor is like, you've got to stop. I love <laughs> Can't have a dissolve between every single track. I'm like, but it does something magical with time. It, it does. does. It's, yeah. it's wonderful, and it works so well when you're trying to be disorder. I mean, there's so many things I would like to ask you about the film that I shouldn't. We can't do here because I don't want to ruin anything for people who haven't seen it, or even for people who have. But but it just goes to that sense of kind of where am I? Where are we? Where is the story happening? Uh, effect of the film that is so lovely. And, um, uh, it's, it's just, it's an incredible film and I, I, everybody who has not seen it needs to see it. Um, I also think, God, how, how did you do, how did, how did you make Frankie ghost to Hollywood? Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what, what it is you did, but I don't think I've ever heard that song except for the first time I listened to that album a thousand years ago and it never again. <laughs> It's so funny, isn't it? Because it's like, it's so massive, that song in the UK. It was enormous. It was like, was it? okay. Yeah, it was a Christmas number one. It was mm. like huge, big song. And it's, it's like so much of the music was like music I loved as a kid. Well, sure, the, yeah. The whole sort of experience of making it was like becoming a child again and having to go back into my own past and literally going into my old own house and like going through and finding all my own records and remembering what like I loved as a kid and or what I was miserable about as a kid or whatever it was. And, and so it was like, I was constantly being dragged back to my own childhood. It was a, it was a strange experience. Well, and it also makes the case, you know, people often like to just sort of dismiss a movie by going, it was self-indulgent. And to me, it's like, well, it's an art form. And isn't that kind of the point? No, it's personal. It's not self-indulgent. It's personal. But it, it's self-indulgent. Yeah, exactly. But I'm like, this is a self-indulgent movie. And this is why that is a good thing. Um, I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a it's such a balance, isn't it, between personal and self indulgent? It, it's so so it's so closely related. And you know, let's all say you can sometimes see films when you're like, yeah, that's too personal. We don't care about that story <laughs> other than you. And so it's all yeah. for me. It was always like a good personal story is so good when there's enough that's universally sort of holding it up and allowing lots of people to try and understand the story. That's but but also, but also so specific, 
You know, because yeah. there was one moment where I was like, is it is it deviating from the meaning of the film and the import of it and and so forth? The the, the scenes where the character um, played by, oh my God, Andrew Scott is God. I can't, I've always loved him. And have you seen, by the way, have you seen the video of him doing to be or not to be, or have you seen him doing Hamlet? I have seen it. Yeah. I haven't seen oh it. My. Flesh. I've seen the video of it. Yeah. I, I've never, it's like, I've never seen anybody do that soliloquy before. <laughs> he's amazing. But, but the scene where he's coming out to his parents, um, there was a brief hour. I'm like, Oh, this is getting more specific and it's getting away from, and then you're like, Oh no, it's not. It's, it's so specific that it is universal. It's, it's yeah. And, 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 uh, um, just, I'm always a big believer in that. Like, you know, you know, growing up, let's say, and watching films, I didn't, didn't see any representation that was exactly like me. Right. But I could still see myself in so many films. Sure. And so, yeah. it, you know, I think you can sometimes forget that, that like it's just specificity is fantastic as long as it says something else at the same time. And I love being able to see myself on screen in all different types of ways, even though it's not actually my experience. But but as someone who who sort of had the opposite, you know, like my entire life, pretty much, if I wanted to go see like straight white men just kicking ass and taking names, all I had to do was turn on the TV, and and I did not have to do that work. Um, it's it's just it's nice to be living at a time where that's being kind of turned around, and because that that just breeds such a degree of empathy. When you are sitting, when you're identifying with, you know, a nine-year-old Chinese girl or something, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I absolutely love the film. And I also, um, in, in preparing for this, uh, I saw, we also have a fear. Some filmmakers have done things where they've done lists before and you've done several and, and we're always hoping they won't do the same list. And he's not Joe. He came up with something very cool for us, but I was prepared. If you were going to talk about five easy pieces, which you're not, but that seems to pop up a lot on your lists. Um, yeah. my, my, uh, Step great aunt, very complicated family, is the actress Lois Smith. And yeah. she was the first person who told me about your movie, and she was practically weeping when she did it. She That's loves so this I film. Met Lois at some screening. It was so exciting. Yeah. She loves your film so much. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember texting her after we got back from Christmas. I was like, oh my God, you undersold it. That's <laughs> <laughs> so cool. But anyway, we'll cut all that. None of this. Um, <laughs> let's 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 get into it, Andrew. Um yeah, tell Joe. We we never tell Joe what the theme is going to be or what the movies are going to be. And um, I thought you picked a particularly nice idea. Yeah, so I, I thought because my because the film for me, the one I made, was so much about going back into my own childhood. I thought instead of just doing like ten films that I've said before or ten films that are I think are the ten greatest films of all time, it was sort of less interesting to me. And rather like what were those films that I grew up watching? from like, you know, the age of like six, about the age of 14. And, you know, my family was not a hugely cine literate family. I was just a regular suburban kid living outside of London. Um, and so it was like lots of my films end up being like American movies from the 80s. But I was, for me, it's kind of interesting to go back and think, why did I love those films so much? And I can watch them now and I can be dragged back to being a kid again. It's so, so amazing to me it's the same with music but films especially i can watch a movie that's that i loved as a kid and i'm suddenly nine years old again i'm sitting in my, my front room it's time travel it's amazing it's amazing it's when they're good or do you find like because <clears throat> one of the things i was worried about we've talked about this recently on the show even where you go back to one of those movies and it actually turns out to be terrible are you able to like overlook that i mean when they're great it has that impact on me when they're movies i love for the right reason but 
there are some movies that you go back and you watch. I'm not sure. I mean, I remember this is a weird one. This is not on my list, but my dad rented The Winged Serpent. Do you remember that film? Sure. Q, the winged serpent. Oh, um, Q, Q, yeah. the winged Yeah, Q, the Larry Cohen film. Oh, my God. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> that is not appropriate for a 10 year old kid. But my dad was confused when he went to the video store. And weirdly, I think it was the same time he also got me Porkies. Remember that? Which is really not for a 10 year old kid. <laughs> which is not for The cover had like a pig on it, like a cartoon pig. And he obviously didn't look at it. <laughs> And so I remember watching The Winged Serpent and he sat down and watched it with me. And there's the beginning bit when the head gets like cut off by the, by the serpent. And my dad was like, oh, God, I don't think this is an appropriate film. But he let me watch it anyway. And I watched that film in quite recently. And I was like, oh, it's not quite how I remember that film. Man. I still kind of loved it, though. That was just for, for me, it's hilarious. That, that's a movie I have a specific because I saw that. Do you remember the scene where the lizard picks the woman up and flies over to New York while it, people come running out of a movie theater on Times Square? and blood splatters all over them. I saw it in that movie theater. <laughs> I have to say, when, when we had the writer-director of All of Us Strangers on the show, I never in a million years thought we'd be talking about Q the Winged Serpent. I, mean, uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's, I know, it's funny. You feel like I should, you know, I, I hear other directors talking, especially about films they loved as kids, and you realize that they watch, like, you know, Fanny and Alexander, and they watch Antonioni, <laughs> and they just grew up on Chaplin films and they right. do them. And I'm like, what? My childhood was just not that at all. I went to cinema twice a year if we were lucky, you know, and it was occasionally videos from the video shop. That's the thing, not watching. That's, you know, the, the, only, the only filmmaker I fully trust when he talks that way is Paul Schrader because I don't think he saw a movie until he was 23 because of the way he was raised. So he came to movies as a sophisticated adult and, you know, he walked in the door through, you know, Godard or whatever. So him, I believe, but the rest of them, like you're lying. There is a, there is a cue, the winged serpent in your background, sir. <laughs> let's, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Um, what's, what's the first film on your list? So I should actually get my list up, shouldn't I? Oh, which okay. Might... Or I can feed them to you, whichever is you, you can feed them to me. Yeah. Yeah. Watership oh. down is my first film on the list. I think. Um, That's a cheery one. The, the cheery <laughs> one. <laughs> But it is, if I try and think back at like the first film that had an impact on me that I remember watching, it is probably that film. And I watched it, I don't, I don't know how old I must have been, eight maybe? I can't even remember when it came out. Uh, I probably watched it when I was eight. But it, it was, again, one of those films in the UK that everyone, it was, I think it was U Certificate, which is basically for everybody. The youngest kids could watch it. Um, and it's terrifying, <laughs> that film. Yeah, Absolutely. it's a dark movie, yeah a really dark movie and i am convinced that my whole cinematic uh life has been defined by that movie i'm wow. convinced of it. it's sort of it's so melancholy it's so deeply deeply sad it's essentially like an existential novel for children right it's essentially what it is it's about the the pain of existence <laughs> the inevitability of death uh <laughs> the limitations of our ability to change anything the, the illusions of freedom. It's all of these things wrapped up in a story about rabbits. Talking rabbits. comes from Russia. Crazy, yeah. But it, it's, and I watched it again recently. It's so beautiful, actually, the animation on it. And it's so English with its sort of delicate sort of Englishness about it. It's so melancholy. And you've got Art Garfunkel singing and um, it's so sad. And I, 
I think everything I've liked going forward is that mixture of sort of not really knowing how you're supposed to feel when you're watching something. So you're scared and then you're really sad and you're terrified and then you feel lonely and then you feel uplifted. And I think that film weirdly defines all of those things, strangely for me. It does. And it wasn't, I mean, the novel wasn't geared towards children. No. And, and I remember, um, I'm obviously a bit older than you, a bit younger, a bit older. And, and I remember being kind of impressed because, you know, like a lot of people have always wanted to see sort of animation move into kind of more adult turf and not just like the heavy metal movie, although that was wonderful for a teenage boy. But yeah, I remember when that movie came out thinking like how many parents are taking their innocent children to see this film? Cause it's a cartoon about talking rabbits. <laughs> God, but yeah. Then I, we about. And then, cause I tried to like, it's amazing how many people you speak to who are now my age, like I'm 50 now. And they and they were like scarred by that movie. They were yeah. absolutely scarred by it growing up. And a good judge for me of a person is if they were scarred, but they enjoyed being scarred. Like, <laughs> it's a good judge of a person because I'm like, okay, you're probably quite interesting because even as a child, you enjoyed being messed up and destroyed by something. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and I can see that too. I mean, it. And it still makes me cry now, weirdly. When I watched it, there's a Criterion edition of it. Um, And when I watched it again, it still made me have the same emotional effect. And I I feel like that's so interesting that the the child in me, 40 however many years ago when I watched it, is not that different than who I am now. It's like I'm, I'm so obsessed by the sort of continuity of personality and how you've changed and not changed. And so when I go back and watch all those films, I'm like, oh, yeah, I understand why I like it so much. It still makes sense who I am mm-hmm. now. As a yeah, 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 for sure. And it's just, and it's now part of you. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, oh, I love that. I love that. Well, next up. You got the list. Oh, I do. Okay, we're we doing that. Uh, uh, this, uh, this E.T. movie here. It's a little movie that no one's heard of. I think it's, you know. Exactly. He, he did quite well, I think, that director. He went on to do a few things. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, he did some stuff. Um, it was, when that came out in the UK, it was such a phenomenon. You know what I mean? It was, and I think it's so weird. It's probably difficult for Americans to understand that for British kids, America was like the promised land of everything. It's all we wanted, we were obsessed by. You were so good as a culture of, sending your culture out to the rest of the world that we grew up on on so many american films and it felt just bigger and larger than anything we could ever experience but here's but you understand how we perceive you right because I, I i lived there for a year uh went to school and i was stunned because over here all the british tv we got was you know masterpiece theater it was like the good stuff it was the classy stuff or it was monty python or whatever it was just the cream of the crop and when i got there um uh i don't know if it was bbc or i somebody was running chips every day at you know for an hour and yeah you guys you guys got the worst of our stuff you just got the dross and we were getting like the cream of the crop and the fact that uh, anyone could grow up in England and think of America as anything except this giant media garbage dump is amazing to me. <laughs> Although I'm hate to say it, that I absolutely loved chips. Sure, just, yeah, you did. It was forced I, on you. 
<laughs> me, and, me and my partner always talk about it. We're like, yeah, we used to love Chips, Dukes of Hazards, A Team, all of those shows that were just all the time on the television over in the UK. Yeah. Because whether you have like three channels total and that stuff was just like bombarding you, of course you would. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing you came out all right. but I know, yeah, just about all right. Um, but I, again, I watched uh, E.T. again a couple of Christmases ago. And this thing, which I'm sort of obsessed by, by like, like time travel, emotional time travel. Mm-hmm. Remember when I watched it, and it, I, I could feel how I used to feel when I watched that film. It's so bizarre. I was like dragged back. And I did see it in the cinema. We went to go and see it in the cinema. You know, and in those days, I didn't go to cinema very often. It was probably only my like fourth trip to the cinema. And it was just overwhelming, that story for me. And I always always feel like it is, again, the films that I responded to as a kid were also rooted in some kind of uh, sad reality, let's say. So I saw that my parents split up when I was uh, nine years old. So, you know, seeing that film and seeing uh, like divorced family and seeing kids and his desire to like have connection with this other thing. Like, at the time, you look back and it's like, well, it's obvious now. That's why I love the film because it sure. spoke to me on that level. But as a kid, you're like, oh, it's got an alien in and I love it. And they're on bikes and they're <laughs> going up in the sky and there's a nice shot of the moon. And then as you grow up, you look back and you're like, well, that's why it like meant so much to me, that it, it did actually speak to me. And I, I think that it's so important to, when you talk about like why films work, is that they have to work on both of those levels. They can't just be pure entertainment. There's nothing, it doesn't, there has to be something underneath it that is sort of helping it along and making it feel like it actually means something. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which... which uh... Again, not not knowing the Japanese novel, having only read the outline, you you clearly did that to your your movie. Was, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, how about Watcher in the Watcher in the Woods? Man, no one has ever brought up Watcher in the Woods, Joe. Well, people Any tend chance? to not because you know there, it was a troubled production, and uh, there is there are a couple of different versions. Of it. Oh, really? Yeah. No. Yeah, there is. There's a different ending, isn't yeah. there? There's a new. There's a as an alternate ending, I was reading about it because you know, I, I this is one of those examples when you watch it again, you're like, it's probably not the greatest film in the world. <laughs> like, it's not going to turn up on the top ten best films ever made. Let's face it, it's really not going to. Um, but they, they, yeah, there was they reshot, didn't they? The whole ending. Yeah, they changed. They, they changed the whole concept. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, the, the ever popular bad preview <laughs> led to this. You know, as we all know from previews, uh, it, it can it can ruin your movie. Just it, one person walking out at the wrong time can lose your argument with the studio. Yeah, right. So, so it was it was it was heavily compromised. But it was, it's a very offbeat subject. It's a very interesting movie. It is, isn't it? It's got like a very strange tone to it, and that's what I remember. And it, it is it's it's really scary. You know, and I was young when I saw it, and it's really creepy and strange and weird. And it's funny because there are shots in Watcher in the Woods, like um, Edgar Wright saw my film, saw All of Us Strangers. And he was like, did you like Watcher in the Woods as a kid? And I'm like, I'm like, Oh, Edgar, yeah. I did, I did like (laughs) it. And he was like, I think there's a scene, isn't there, in Watcher in the Woods with um, like when she's trapped in a hall of mirrors and there's lots of reflections. 
And we ended up talking about it. And he had used that sequence from Watcher in the Woods to talk to his DP when he was doing Last Night in Soho. Last Night, yeah, I would say it'd have to be, yeah. Yeah, how you can do reflections within a thing. And it was just so funny. We talked about that film, about how it both, because we're the same age pretty much, and how it somehow had some weird impact on us as kids. And so it's just that one, there's a one sequence and she's lost in this hall of mirrors. And it freaks me out. And I went recently to Santa Cruz, the, uh, the boardwalk there, and there's a ghost house thing you walk through. And I was trapped in a hall of mirrors and it absolutely terrified me. <laughs> I was like, panicky. <laughs> I was like, I've got to get out. I've got to get out of this space. Freaked me out. So that's had an impact on me somehow in my life. It's amazing that he saw that and got it too. That's uh, Yes. <laughs> it's so it's living in his head. Not just that. There was a clip of Watcher in the Woods in the movie. So there's a there's a moment in a sort of montage when him and Harry are sitting around on the sofa and eating pizza and they're watching TV. And if you look carefully in the window, there is a reflection out in the sky, basically, which is reflecting the glass. And it is that scene oh, of wow. her trapped in the uh, the mirrored room from Watcher in the Woods. That's amazing. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, the next one now... And not to not to make you feel bad, but I just I have this. It's like you are so you're you're about to identify as being under fifty, because this next film, everybody under fifty loves it, and everybody over fifty hates it. <laughs> it's the Goonies. <laughs> what is the deal with the Goonies? Do you know what you're so right, isn't it? Everybody over fifty hates that film. Do you 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 both hate the film? I, I don't. I don't hate the. I don't hate the film. I just keep getting uh, mistaken for the director on it. <laughs> <laughs> that would make me really hate that movie. <laughs> like that one was not. That's yeah. You're like I didn't do that one. That's not me. It's that, and then the other one. It's it always goes and the same people generally. Let me ask you, uh, Spaceballs, funny movie. Do you know what? I can't remember it enough to know oh, okay. if I think it's funny. The same people who love the Goonies always think Spaceballs is hilarious. And the yeah. rest of us were like, what has happened to Mel? <laughs> I, I tried to show, um, I tried to show, um, I, I've got two kids and I tried to show them the Goonies and they were like, yeah, I don't really like it. And I was oh. like, what? And then you, and I, I sort of understand why like people older than me don't really like it. But at the same time, when I was a kid and watching it and just seeing this, like, this gang of boys getting together and, like, saving something and all being a bit, like, outcasts and no one really liking them, becoming friends, was enough as a kid for you to love something like that. that and they don't really make films so much like that's that. That's the same appeal as the art gang comedies were to our parents, you know, any, gr any group of kids getting together and doing a bunch of stuff and getting in trouble. That was, all, that was always good. Kids always liked that. Yeah. But you're right. I can't think of the last time I saw a contemporary film that was a group of kids that were not like already either a formed group. Um, yeah. But the fact you're right, the, the Goonies were all kind of like they're outcasts and slackers and losers who are brought together. I can, I can, I can see the appeal. I can see the appeal. And also, you know, they're, they're like losing their home and they can't afford to live there anymore. And there's enough in it for a kid that makes you like, I, th I think some of those films, which however um, broad they can be, it's, all, it's like, I always think that some of those films end up being like pop songs. Like pop songs for kids, the reason we love them so much is that often the themes are quite broad in those pop songs. 
and they say what they feel and they're big and large and expansive. And you, as a kid, you kind of start to understand things through those mediums. And I think a really, really good kids film does the same thing for kids. They start to understand, oh, you know what? Maybe not everybody does, uh, you know, can afford to live in their house and can get kicked out of their home. And you, know, so you start to understand those things. But when you're an adult, you look at them, you're like, oh, God. All right, I'm not sure that film is the greatest in the world. But as a kid, you're like, oh, it's teaching me something, even if it's subconsciously. That's interesting, too, because American films are so very much not class conscious. And, yeah. and that seems like something that, that an English audience would pick up a little bit quicker. But I, I think more of the issue with the Goonies is just more of the style. Because I just when I think of it, I just think of it as just like just just lots of noise and the camera whipping around and things blowing up and hitting you over the head nonstop and kids screaming and yelling and like <laughs> It was just like, I, I can't hear the picture through all the noise. Turn it down. <laughs> I will say I haven't watched it for quite a long time. So it would be interesting to do rewatch it again. You know, but look, Sean Astin was so cute in it. What a cute <laughs> kid he was in it. Like, I wanted him to be my best friend. I was like, why? I want him to be my friend. Please let him be my friend. He, what is it about Jack? Because that's, that's, of course, him in Lord of the Rings, too. It's like he is the greatest best friend in movies, right? <laughs> He's just, there's something so, I don't know what it is, yeah. And my partner, when I talk to him, he feels the same way. He's like, I loved Sean Astin. He was in yeah. love with him as a kid. He was like, yeah. I, all I want to do is, is, is like hang out with Sean Astin in the group. Yeah. He's like the Manchurian candidate of kid actors. Yeah. <laughs> Kindest and nicest. Just do it. Do it. Rip off the Band-Aid, Andrew. Tell, tell Joe your next one. You got to do it. You're looking at the man. <laughs> yes. All right, you you don't have it mixed up with Goonies? <laughs> don't mix up with Goonies. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been funny if I'd come on and said, oh, Joe, it's so nice to meet you. I love the Goonies. It's just, it's I've heard world. it. I've heard it. <laughs> oh, I wish, I wish we had prepped that. Yeah. Um, no, seriously, like, even if you were not sitting on this podcast, <laughs> I would have definitely chosen that film. Like, I... It's funny because when it came out in the UK, I was too young to see it in the cinema because it got given a 15 certificate, I think, to start with. Because it was, it was too, whatever, violent they saw for kids. But I became so obsessed by wanting to see that film even before I'd seen it. I had the sticker album. I would spend all of my pocket money on getting the little stickers and putting the stickers thing. I like wanted a Mogwai. I was like absolutely obsessed by it. And then I did finally see the film, and I was still young. I think I must have seen it when it finally came out on video, I guess, in England. And I just love that film. I still love that film. I still watch it, like, every other Christmas. I think I put that film on. And, yeah. Wait, not for the kids, though, right? Kids don't. No, it's, they're, yeah. they're terrified. It terrifies them. But, you know, for me, I, as, you know, as seen by the first film I loved, I loved being terrified. And also... It's, it is actually really quite scary, the film, but it's so, like, anarchic and, yeah. and, and crazy. And it's, I, I don't know, you know. I don't, I don't, I don't mind showing kids scary stuff. I, I had a, 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 my 10-year-old uh, nephew and 13-year-old niece were here a while ago, and they wanted to see something on Uncle Josh's big screen, and I always show them a great movie. And I came this close to showing them Gremlins. Um, and then I remembered the the. The Santa Claus scene. And I'm like, oh, should I ask my sister? It's like, yeah, he still believes. I'm like, okay, I'm not showing gremlins. <laughs> I am not going to be responsible for that. 
for that for that destruction of a I'll scare the shit out of it. We ended up watching Jaws. We loved it. But yeah. <laughs> But that scene is so that I, I, I think that's probably my favorite scene in, in the film is the scene about the story about Santa Claus. And I'm amazed I'm still amazed that they allowed you. Well, they did. To they 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 were they were they were very unhappy about it, and they kept wanting me to cut it. Even after the successful preview, they kept saying, "Well, you can now we can at least cut that right." And it was like I said, "You don't understand. It encapsulates the entire movie. It's a terrible story for her, but it's a funny story to us. And there's a dichotomy there, and there's a tension there. And it, it's sort of it's. I, I said, I don't want to lose it. And it, it's why not. they didn't? No, I can't believe they were so like. If the reason they wanted to cut it is they didn't want to destroy Santa Claus for all these no, kids. No, that's I mean, not why. They just they th- just thought it w- they thought it was just weird and they didn't understand it. Oh. And they was like, why are we stopping the story for it and telling this stupid story? And uh, yeah, no, that is why we are still here today talking about Gremlins. I mean, it's but it's just it's <laughs> so sad. No, but it's it's, it's, it's sad. just takes it's it the, to the it's next the most level. Tragic story, isn't it? It's yeah. so tragic. And like when I watched it recently, it still makes me well up with tears because it's so sad. And I think that's what I love about, and again, I think there is something about when I, when I was thinking about this list of the films that I loved growing up, and I think about the film I've just made, there is a relationship somehow to those things because tonally that should not work in Gremlins. You go from, you know, a certain scene to this really, really sad story, but it absolutely works because it feels integral to what the film is about. And so I love that when you can just shift through these different like emotional states in a story, and especially in a film that's. When, here's a question, Joe. When you made it, did you make it for kids or adults? So, what was your like? I I made it for myself. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But but it is it's that moment where you're. I mean, I can still remember it. It's crazy. There's 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 scenes. You know, I go back and watch every now and then. There's like, oh, I forgot that scene. I forgot this scene. But that is the moment I remember sitting in a theater and just feeling this just like lurching, like, oh, my God, like this movie has just launched into the stratosphere in, in a way that I didn't could not possibly have seen coming. And uh, it's one of the great tonal shifts, too. And then, it, and then it comes directly from that to the Peltzer smokeless ashtray coming out of the gas station. You know, it's, it's almost like a slap in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's magic. It's real magic. I love the dad in it so much. I love the dad because he's sort of kind of not the best dad in the world, but he also loves his kid so much. And I, I, that's, he, he actually feels like a real rounded person that is trying his best, even though he's maybe not the greatest in the world, but absolutely adores his kid. I had, I had, seen, I had seen Hoyt Axton as the father in The Black Stallion, which is a, a fairly short part but it's it was it, it was really resonant to me, and uh, and I, I think we saw lots of people for that part. Some of the some of the actors who were so good we couldn't hire them. Pat Hingle came in and he did this Gino Mill kind of <laughs> take on the character. This is great, but I can't. This is not the movie we're making. Uh, but Hoyt was just perfect because he was folksy and he was lovable and he was funny, um, and it, it was you know it was casting wise that was. And I've still got my sticker album. What can I say? I've still got it. But it's worth something. I know. eBay. Exactly. eBay. eBay. You put it on eBay. <laughs> after this, I'll put it straight on. I said, after my conversation with Joe Dante, I'm now going to put this sticker album on eBay. Get, get Joe to sign it first. Yeah, exactly. Uh, happy to. The, um, 
Hey, we're just going to take a quick break uh, to do a couple of things. First and foremost, I want to remind you that we have a Patreon. Go to patreon.com, the movies that made me, and you can help support the show. And every month or so, get uh, a delightful a surprise. Mailbags, uh, longer conversations with folks, interviews. It's fun stuff, and uh, we really, really, really do appreciate your support. Um, now, we'd like to take another moment and tell you about our sponsors, MoviesUnlimited.com, who you know about. What you might not know about is the release of their premiere first-run bookazine of the Movies Unlimited Essential Guide to Star Trek Volume 1, the OS original series. Uh, this information-packed publication takes a comprehensive look at the TV series. It's Star Trek, folks. Anybody who loves Star Trek is going to love this guide. It's filled with great articles, rarely seen photographs, and lots of things you didn't know about the original voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So get your copy at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million Locations, and of course, MoviesUnlimited.com. And also, MoviesUnlimited.com is still the place where you can find all your favorites, old and new, uh, in, in physical media, Blu-rays, DVDs. Uh, when you click their banner on our website or go directly to moviesunlimited.com, you can shop to your heart's content for hard-to-find films, imports, and more. You can also sign up to receive their monthly printed catalog with hundreds of movies at great prices. Shipping is always free on qualifying orders over $50. So go now to moviesunlimited.com, the movie collector's website. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. So let's change the subject. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, some like it hot. Oh, yeah. So that's a film I still think is probably one of the greatest films. Like, I would still put that on a list now. It's like, a, it really does feel like it's, as a comedy, it does still feel sort of near perfect to me. I think there's, you know, I still can watch it over and over again. And there was a time when I got to about, I guess it's probably... 12 maybe the age of 12 there were a couple of films and the next one you'll bring up i think is another one of those films that i just kept watching over and over and over and over and over again and this one is a is a genius film whereas the next one you could probably argue is perhaps not one of the greatest films of all time but this one probably one is and i just would we watch it over and over again and i'm not entirely sure what it is that spoke to me so much in that film apart from his you know i guess I don't know. I, I still can't quite work it out. I mean, maybe it's a pretty queer film dressed up in a very, uh, you know, mainstream, uh, you know, story, perhaps. But, but, even though there's but, no it, but in the it. thing that I get, it's like, absolutely. And it also, for that era, especially, I've never met anybody uh, who who is 
offended by any of its portrayal or any, it's never, there's so much like, ha ha ha, isn't gay funny stuff going on in you know a century of film. There's none of that here. As much as they're playing stuff for laughs, it's never disrespectful. It's never, I mean, my God, that last line. You but, know. It's still, <laughs> but it's still transgressive. It is. Yeah, no, it's incredibly transgressive. And it plays today completely. It's like, you're not going to, I think you're not going to offend anything but the most, you know, maybe a young audience that's looking to be outraged by the fact that, you know, Jack Lemmon didn't actually dress up as a lady in his spare time. But, you know. <laughs> I even think that a young audience would, would still couldn't complain about it. It's so it's, I think you'd, you'd get swept away on how good it is and how enjoyable, you know, yeah. Matt Monroe is incredible in it. And it's all, it's all, you know, I, I used to make my, me and my brother used to watch it completely. And still now, you know, we know all the lines and the bits that we love and it's, it's still, it's such a good, and you're right, that last line sort of, it's actually quite, it's really subversive. It's really subversive. It's insane. And it kills because it's so funny that like, you yeah. know, somehow every, the audience is dying laughing and then all this kind of subversion is seeping in through their open mouths or something. But <laughs> it's completely reasonable in this world that Jack Lemmon is considering marrying a man. <laughs> I know. And At no point. Yeah, you want him to because it makes it happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And at no point is anybody like, you know, it's, it's only cause like you're, you're not allowed to do that. Nobody's like, Oh, that's sick. Or that's this. They're yeah. just like, dude, you can't do that. He's a man. You're not allowed. It's. <laughs> not joking. And it's so he comes back from that dancing session with him and he's so excited. Maracas. He's there his head, like, <laughs> using the maracas and he's like, Oh my God, it was the best night ever. And you're, and you're like, that is hysterical. It's absolutely yeah. hysterical. Joey Brown wouldn't have been yeah. my choice, but I, I can I can yeah. certainly understand. <laughs> Look, Joe, you get to a point in your life you're really looking more for security than passion. You know what I mean? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, that was a real comeback part for Joey Brown. Uh, you know, he was, sure. he was kind of forgotten, and this was this was his big comeback. It was great. I wonder if they had a real difficulty making it. I wonder if the studio were like, this is a terrible idea, or whether it was like, yeah, this is a great idea. Because you can imagine on paper, they'd be like, really? This is going to work? People are going to watch this? That's kind of an independent uh, film, you know, because it was released to United Artists. So I think, uh, and, and I think Wilder had enough of a cachet that uh, they said, well, you know, I guess we can trust her. And what is it? Yeah, it's another one of those ones where I can remember right where I was the first time I saw it, and just the the the, the atom bomb of that last line. You're like, oh, the movie's over. Okay, you're starting to like, you can feel it coming, and then that moment, and the audience just explodes. <laughs> God, that is how you go out, boy. People remember yeah. your endings more than anything else. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, next up, Stand by Me. Oh no, that's a great film. I thought I had something else on the list, though. But that, yeah, I think. Oh, what did you do? You want to? You know, I think I might have had nine to five. Or was that still on the list? Oh, somehow that's not on the list. I got, but sure, let's yeah, nine that's to five. Nice. That was another one that I was watching all the time. Around, I was watching some. I mean, it's no surprising that I'm gay now. When I think about when I was twelve years old, I was watching nine to five and some like it hot. I think it's, it's been the thing. That's, I think it's nothing to do with nature or nurture. It's all to do with the fact I watched nine to five and some like it hot when I was twelve years old on repeat constantly but that was another film that i just couldn't get enough of it i could not stop watching it um and and it's interesting because it's got so many weird tonal shifts that film as well you've got weird fantasy sequences and it goes from a workplace comedy to a kidnap comedy and all kinds of things wrapped up in some slightly strange story um 
And I think, again, it speaks to the things I've sort of, I'm always sort of interested in when I'm surprised by the turn of events in a movie and it doesn't go where I think it's going to go. But Stand By Me is, is the one that is actually on your list. Yes, is on my list. And I did adore that film. So I'm, I, when did it come out, Stand By Me? What was the year? I say like 86. 86, 86. I think, yeah. Seven. Yeah. yeah, so I'm sort of like 13 years old, which I think is sort of the perfect time to watch a film, to film like that. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like it was a, it's, it's one of those, I think movies, especially if you watch them at the right time, they feel like transitions, periods in your life that you become, start to become something else. And I think when I saw that film, it was the time I was probably the same age as them, thinking about, you know, starting to go into puberty, uh, starting to worry about becoming an adult, starting to think more and more about death <laughs> and all the adult concerns that we have in life. And that film for somehow encapsulated all of that stuff um, for me. And at the same time, sort of, because it's obviously set in the 50s, I think about it sometimes. It makes you think that every generation experiences the same things. It doesn't matter that I might have been in the 80s growing up as a kid. You can watch kids in the 50s on a film dealing with the same things, even though there's been a huge period of time has gone by. And I don't know why, there's something uh, reassuring about that when you're going through difficult times that everybody goes through difficult times yeah. and they always have. Yeah, and that friendship will get you through. You know, the community yeah. will get you through that. Yeah, poor poor guy. I, like like he cares. He's doing fine. But I, I to this day, uh, I have to adjust for 10, 15 seconds every time I see Kiefer Sutherland in something. Unless he's playing a villain, in which case I'm like, great, he's the villain. Of course he's the villain. But every time I see him, I'm like, that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking piece of shit. He's just like, he's the guy who tormented me in my childhood. I want to kick him in. Oh, no, he's Kiefer Sutherland. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> he's so good in that movie. He's and he's, so good at it. They're awful in that movie to those kids. They really are awful to the kids. And you think I had a like rough time when I was sort of nine and ten at school and was picked on and things. And so those that's what movies can do when you can see that. Oh, okay, you can learn to deal with rough stuff that happens to you through watching those films. And again, it's a there's some interesting choices in that film, like that end choice to to talk about the fact that the River Phoenix character dies. Yeah. That's a really interesting choice for a film like that. And it's a perfect choice because it's so sad and it makes you end on this note of like, okay, I feel really melancholic about what I'm watching, but it feels really truthful and it feels sad, but I'm not devastated. There's lots of different emotions going on at the time. And I think that's why that film works so well when you leave it because you're like, it's complicated how you're feeling about nostalgia and the past and all of those things. Yeah, for sure. And have you ever read the short story or the novel? Uh, the Body, I did read it. Yeah, look, yeah. I read it. I think I might have read it because it's in that different seasons, isn't it? It's in yeah. that, which again is something in my film, uh, Claire Foy's character mentions because she talks about Stephen King books and she's like, That's right. Different That's seasons, right. The Cujo, different seasons. Yeah. So the it's early funny. ones. I was a big. Yeah, because also Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption, the, the story that became that is in there. And, yeah. And uh, I pupil. mean, that was such an incredible collection. And App Pupil, which to me was like, they, they could it could have been the third great movie to come out of that, and I feel like it's still yeah. it's still sitting there waiting for somebody to 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 do it right. I think that 
that um, that's such a dark story. But yeah, yeah. maybe that's what I'll do next. Maybe I'll just see if the rights <laughs> are still available to have people. Well, well, I mean, I was surprised when they did because not not to knock the filmmakers, but I just felt like you know, like they're, they're like my age. I think I was like, I'm too. I think we're we're all too young to do this story at that time because it's it's really a story about real evil, not like magical evil. And I, I felt even when it came, you know, when I first read it, that like, I'm too young to grapple with that. And these people are too young. It's like, I think you need to be a little bit older to to be able to really grapple with the issues of that story. I mean, it's, um, yeah. Think about yeah. it, man. I think there's a whole, there's a whole generation of kids, isn't there, that grew up on Stephen King books. Like I, you know, in my teens, yeah. I used to see them all the time, you know, and was obsessed by them. And it's amazing how many people I bump into and, he, and lots of filmmakers as well. And you talk about what they read as kids, and they're like, "Well, I just read Stephen King books." And it's like, yeah. so many of us have been influenced by Stephen King, even if we don't go and make, you know, those kind of films. Yeah. There is his best books feel really grounded and truthful, as well as being, you know, sometimes terrifying and, and magical or whatever they might yeah. be. Always grounded in something that feels truthful. And there's there's a moment, isn't there, when as you get older and you're still reading him, where you realize like it's both a moment of disappointment and validation where you're like, Oh shit, he's actually a really good writer. Yeah. You know? So it's like, ah, oh, you're reading that trashy garbage horror stuff and you're kind of like taking pride in it. But it's like, you're like, I really like it. It's really good. It's actually you, a pretty, yeah, yeah. You, read that, um, you can read that. Is it on writing? He does a book. Oh it? my God. His uh, book on writing is amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, David Lynch, elephant man. Not, not, does not get as much love as it deserves, I feel like. Sheldon, it's such amazing. And I, it, I, I started, so I'm sort of probably now like 14, 15, and I'm starting to like want to see different films and films that I think are slightly more interesting artistically. And I definitely went through a, a David Lynch stage in my mid uh, teens and Elephant Man, Blue Velvet. Then I went, Wild at Heart came out when I was about 18, I think. Let's see that. Um, but Elephant Man, I remember watching. I so vividly remember watching, sitting on the sofa. Um, I lived with my dad at the time, but we went to stay with my mum. And me and my younger brother and my mum sat on the sofa and we rented Elephant Man. And it was my choice. Like, I really want to get this movie. And we were so distraught. <laughs> we were sobbing and sobbing. All three of us were like absolutely devastated by the end of that film. And it's almost one of my most like special moments, family moments with my brother and my mum, mm. of us being on that sofa and like hugging each other, crying, watching a movie. Uh. And you know, and outside of it being an absolutely beautiful piece of work and stunningly shot and performed and and just fascinating about outsiders and and how society brings them in and then pushes them away and all those kind of things the just pure emotional effect and what that can do as an audience member watching something and crying or feeling emotional, it makes you feel better. It doesn't make you feel worse. It makes you feel better. Yeah. It makes you feel, oh, yes. I'm connecting now. And I'm actually, I feel like I know my mum and my brother better because we've watched film, a film by a man I don't know and a film about, you know, the elephant man. And somehow you're connecting from watching it. And also you're walking away going, well, could be worse. I could be the elephant man. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> well, I still worry about going to bed and how many pillows I've got. For some reason, it's imprinted in my mind. I thought, <laughs> without a pillow, what happens if my neck can't quite deal with it in the night? 
Oh, that's right. God, yeah, he dies because he didn't have enough pillows. Oh. No, he takes the pillows away. Like, he knows that everything is too much, and he takes those pillows away, and he makes the choice to sort of die, to kill himself in that moment, Um, you know, just because everything is too complicated for him. Yeah, yeah, amazing. It, it's lovely. And it's so good looking. They, when they talk about David Lynch, it's so obvious that that's part of his work. But it's often yeah, not, it, it feels like a period sort of in between, you know, when he sort of arrived. Sort of like the last Hammer film. Yeah, yeah, kind of that too. But it's like he arrived with a racer head, then he sort of flirts with kind of mainstream Hollywood for a bit because it's still, it's not Lynchian in the traditional sense. You know, it's an adaptation. He does wonderful stuff with it. Um, they also never talk about Straight Story, which which is a movie, yeah. uh, a, a amazing, a G-rated David Lynch movie. Yeah. And there is part of me, you know, uh, on the one hand, like the last season of uh, uh, Twin Peaks, I thought was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. You know, thank God somebody finally gave David Lynch enough money to do what he wanted with it. He gave us 18 hours of this. Um, there's also part of me that, like, I, I would love to see him do one more, I don't know, what's the word, you know, traditional narrative feature where all that stuff is reined in and just bubbling under the surface, you know, it's cause yeah. it's, it's yeah. Yeah. Cause he yeah, can do it. Too, can, it'd be really interesting to see him do something like that. But I think fans are so obsessed by that version of David Lynch that they sort of yeah. don't that other version yeah. of, of Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, but God, yeah, no, he's, he is just amazing. And uh, last but not least, um, uh, don't look now. Uh, How old were you when you saw this? <laughs> I saw it. So, okay, this is a bit embarrassing to be honest with you, but I'm probably, it came out in 73, I think, yeah. which is the year I was born. But I saw it uh, when I was probably about 15 on video. And if I'm brutally honest, I went to get it from the video shop because I'd read an article about the most explicit sex scenes in films. <laughs> so, you know, this is you know, this is the mid eighties. You're not what the internet Number doesn't. One with it. a bullet. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. I want to watch it for. Uh, hey, it's got some really explicit sex scenes in. So I rented it, terrified that they would not rent it to me because I was only fifteen, but they rented it to me. And then I watched it, and in all honesty, I kept fast forwarding on the VHS to get to that point, right? And I watched <laughs> it, and I was like, oh, okay, whatever, that's fine. It is not what you expected, but yeah, not quite what I ex- no, not what I expected. It's sad yeah. and melancholic and tender and beautiful and all those things. And then I went back that same night. I was by myself in the house, and I went back the same night and then watched the film again. And it just like blew me away. And every time I watch it, it does the same thing. It just it does so many different things. And every time I approach it. I feel different things. Sometimes it's scarier than I remember it being, and I'm terrified about that. Sometimes it's more desperately sad, and it feels like the element of uh, dealing with grief in the story feels you know, more present than it did last time I see it. Technically, it's beautiful. I think my love of zooms has come from that movie. There's a lot of really cool fucking zooms in there and you know, slow, sneaking push-ins. And the performances are so brilliant. And, and the sex scene, now that I think about it, I've done a quite a lot of sex scenes in my films, and I will only ever do them if I think that they serve a story purpose and that you are seeing two people reconnect or connect for the first time, whatever it might be, and something really important is happening. Yeah. And 
that film, Don't Look Now, doesn't work without that sex scene, actually. Right. You've got to have it. It's got to be there. It's the moment they come together again after, you know, a horrendous period of grief. Um, there, there's, I don't know if you caught any of this. It seems to be mostly social media. There's been a lot of discourse lately, and there seems to be like a sort of younger generation that is is fixated right now on on. I mean, it's so bizarre. I'm used to like the older folks, you know, going off on this stuff, but like, ah, sex scenes are not necessary in film. You're just working shit out and you're a pervert. And it's been very bizarre, but yeah, that film comes up a lot. Um, I've, I've gotten dragged into it because, because I wrote history of violence, which has, you know, sure. two sex scenes, which like yours is like, I, they matter. They go to character. They're, you know, they're like not just to get off. You do it on the stairs. <laughs> That's right. And, um, <laughs> Uh, but it, it is, it is astonishing to me and, um, uh, that, that people, yeah, I mean, here we, we live in a world where you felt like you had to say that. I'm like, every scene in a movie has to work or yeah, it shouldn't be in there. You know what I mean? It's like, I, yeah, and I wonder what they mean. Those younger, the younger generation, when they think about it is what they don't want to see is a sex scene that isn't any good or doesn't mean anything. I'd right. like to think that if they watched a film, uh, where the sex scene is important, that they just would not have that opinion. I hope they would not have yeah. that opinion. Because it makes no sense to me. You know, film is supposed to reflect life, and people do have sex in life. And it's a very and, 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 and it's it's meaningful in it's life. Meaningful. Even when it's not meaningful, it's meaningful. Yeah, but this generation is yeah. uncomfortable with things that make them uncomfortable. <laughs> That's true. You know? That is very true. It's very and true. if you'd seen the movie yeah. on, in the theaters when it opened, it, you would have seen it on a double bill with the Wicker Man. Yes, it's also a rather unusual film. Got some naughtiness <laughs> in it. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating though, and, and films are so chaste these days. It's um, uh, that was one of the nice things about Poor Things was that it would just it would just. I was about to it say, yeah, I, I, it's just know. yeah, it dealt with it in a way. And I want, I don't think, I think young people are really enjoying that film. So I feel like there's, yeah. like, you know, and there's like the sex scenes in my film are like, you know, they're that they're frank and they exist and young audiences don't seem to be saying, why are we having those scenes? It's disgusting. So I do feel like they, there is a world in which when you look back at some films from the eighties and nineties and the noughties, you look at certain sex scenes and you're like, uh, okay, that is just there. Wow, for wow, 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 yeah. But you know what? Sometimes you just need to be titillated too. Like there's an <laughs> argument that in those days, that's where you got your titillation from. So that's right. that can not necessarily be a bad thing either. As long yeah, as so you couldn't just go it. on YouTube and find a donkey show. It was just, you had to actually work <laughs> for it back then. Exactly. And um, exactly. yeah, yeah. But also it's the thing, I mean, I remember it used to annoy me. I can't remember. It's like Sid Field or one of those guys had a, had a thing in one of their how-to books that um, uh, you, you should never set scenes in the backseat of a car or restaurants because they're static and boring. And, in, and I'm like, I immediately go to like, you know, on the waterfront and I can think of, you know, Hey, restaurants, how about the Godfather? It's a pretty exciting restaurant. And you realize it's like, Oh, they're coming from backwards. They've just seen a lot of movies where there are boring restaurant scenes and the camera's not moving and everything stops. And they're not realizing that the problem isn't the restaurant scene. It's the filmmaker. It's the film. Exactly. You know, you can yeah. watch dinner with Andre and it's all in a restaurant yeah. and it's, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah. And yeah, it would be a very strange thing. It's like, you know what? Can we just get that out on the street and let's have them all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the middle of a car chase, but only if they sit in the front of the car. Yeah. It's like, but, but, but no, but you're right. And, and you think about it, it's like, there are so many movies in which, yeah, there's just a sex scene thrown in. Cause exactly. We got the R rating where it's an era where that's good for us, whatever. And they're dopey or they're exploitative. And as 
I'm with you. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but but they're not well done and they sort of stick out like a sore thumb sometimes. So and it, come to the wrong also, conclusion. Yeah. And if you think about Vernon now, it's again, it, it, it's like going back, sorry, Joe, to Gremlins and you having that story in Gremlins about Santa Claus and this having this sex scene in the middle of this other kind of psychological thriller. It's about you're surprising the audience by a tonal shift that actually yeah. ends up helping you to understand what the film is about. And if you don't have those things, you don't understand, or you, it, you, you, it's harder to understand the themes of what is happening in the story. So those things become so vital. And I think especially with you know, the way films can be made sometimes and the way script development and execs and all that kind of thing, they sort of want to banish those moments out. And it's sometimes hard to say, no, these are the most yeah. important moments, even if they don't feel like they are the same as everything else in the film. And I, I do. I mean, these days, yeah, like like uh, with Yorgos's film, with your film, I'm like, I'm just, I, I, you, you just get an extra point for going there. I'm just like, oh, thank God. <laughs> it's, yeah, we don't want people to be safe in cinema. You don't want to be safe. You want people to yeah. keep like, taking strange risks, especially in like more mainstream cinema, actually. Like that, I mean, obviously people can do it in like art house cinema, but in mainstream cinema, you also want those risks, you know, and you want yeah. people to push, the audiences to be pushed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Andrew, man, uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule, which I know is busy. No, this has been, this has been a complete pleasure. This is a, a very different type of interview, so it's lovely. It's nice to actually be able to- That's what up. we hope. Um, yeah. No, yeah, I just, it's like, this is my life the last few years now, and, and never more than this one, where like Nancy and I finished watching a movie and we're just like wrecked and, you know, 20 minutes into our conversation about it, it's like, oh yeah, we got to get on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very glad you did. So this uh, this opens yeah, in, in America on the 26th of uh, January, theatrically. No, so, no, January. It's open in America now, limited, uh, but expanding. Oh, sorry, yes, I've been assuming it's out. It's out, right? Yeah, it's out. Uh, but going wider, I think, for maybe next weekend, or I'm not quite sure. And then it's out in the UK, 26th of January, and then the rest. The rest. Fantastic. Well, well, please, please, please look out for it, folks. It's it's just it's astonishing. It's just. He'll be he'll be juggling his awards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys. That was a real pleasure. Really nice. Thanks, to meet Andrew. You. Great to meet you. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you. The movies that made me is the official podcast of Trailers from Hell, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer John Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. We are proud to be part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Learn more at airwavemedia.com. This is Josh Olsen for the movies that made me. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.